0: Well, I welcome you again to this Advent season, and to celebrate it, I've decided to briefly uh, step away from Ezekiel for a few weeks and uh, focus in on a very familiar uh, Advent passage that's used a lot during this season and uh, very nicely gives sort of four things to preach about, and so that's what we're going to do, Uh, specifically the four names of the Christ child in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so, uh, so why don't we uh, uh, begin then, right, right now, with, uh, with that text, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, Isaiah says. Unto us a son is given. Listen to this promise. The government shall be upon his shoulder. So any, any idea you had about a king that's disconnected from this world? It's not what this king is. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so the name of this sermon series is Unto Us. And for the next four Sundays, including this one, we're going to be looking at those four titles, those four names given to this son in Isaiah. We're going to begin with Wonderful Counselor. And so that's that's our focus for this morning. What does it mean then? that Jesus has promised to be, and indeed is for us, a wonderful counselor. God gives this promise in chapter 9 of Isaiah about the coming of Jesus. So I'm going to start off by saying, what exactly is going on here? And what exactly is the context of this promise? It's important we know that. And for the next four weeks, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to start off with Isaiah 9, verse 6, and then again Go back and look at the context and then kind of move back and forth then uh, between these two, between the, the, the title and what was going on that necessitated that God's people hear these four names, hear these four promises about who this magnificent son would be. And so what is happening in Judah? Well, the good news is for all of you, we've been in Ezekiel long enough for you to know exactly what's happening in Judah at the time. And that is, things are not good. They're engaging in the very sins that eventually send that first group, of which Ezekiel was a part, into exile. And so, what is happening in Judah? I'm going to make a few observations for you, just from uh, about chapter 2 of Isaiah to about chapter 8. Just a few brief observations to get some context and to get our footing. So first, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. What I want you to notice is is that Judah was prosperous. The land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. They've got horses, they've got chariots, and their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So you have a prosperous people swimming in idolatry. Right? Do I even need to make the modern connection? Let's just pretend I did. Verse six. If you go back one verse before this, you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Why? Because they are full of things from the East fortune tellers like the Philistines and they strike hands. That is think of uh, make promises, make agreements, uh, 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 handshake agreements with the children of foreigners. In other words, Judah was importing Eastern mysticism into their religion, into their worship, into their idolatrous practices. We've talked a little bit about Eastern mysticism on our Wednesday night classes, actually. And they're also, beyond that, beyond their idolatry, beyond their, let's say, their, their consumeristic uh, uh, being covered in, in riches, they're also living for pleasure, chapter 5. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Why? Why? that they may run after strong drink who tarry late who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them in other words they work with one goal in mind i go to work just so i can make it to the evening and drink myself into a stupor they live for the weekend because the weekend or at least the end of the day is the time where you waste away they've also got their morality backwards they're wise in their own eyes and heroes, but at the wrong sorts of things. Uh, verse 20 through 23. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. This should sound very familiar. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes. At drinking wine, shaken, not stirred, right? (laughs) Valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. I don't know if you heard recently, there was a trial that was all over the news. Some people were very upset at how that ended because, well, when mobs don't get their way, people get mad. And so the contrasts begin The sinfulness and depravity of these people is contrasted with with God's holiness. Famously given, uh, uh, seen by Isaiah in chapter 6, right? Lifted up and I saw the Lord high and exalted on his throne. And that contrast remains sharp throughout the rest of the book. In chapters 8 and 9, you start to see this division then between the behavior of this people, sinful, drunken, idolatrous, etc., and the remnant, people who actually belong to the Lord. So let's begin with Isaiah 8.11. 8.11 to the end of chapter 9 is going to kind of mark off the territory that we'll be exploring for the next four weeks with a special focus on chapter 9, verse 6. So verse 11. For Yahweh spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, warned me Not to walk in the way of this people. There's that division. His hand was strong upon me. This is, whatever we might say of it, an intense experience of God that Isaiah is having. Precisely what it looked like, what it felt like, we don't know. Here's what we read, though, in verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the armies, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You could go back to verse 12. At the top there. Do not call conspiracy all of what this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Well, That's interesting. What sort of conspiracy? We're not really sure. Uh, We're not really told. Commentators certainly have a number of theories. But the context leads me to think that the content of the conspiracy was not as important as the effect it was having on the people obsessions with what's really going on here, stories that they were telling about what might be happening. What we have seen through history is that at such times, obsessions with conspiracies and those who theorize them can be the fuel of practical atheism. I'm going to say that again. That obsessions with conspiracies can be the fuel of of practical atheism that's not that you stop confessing jesus as lord of heaven and earth but you start living in a constant kind of fear and trepidation that would only make sense if there isn't a lord of heaven and earth now it's it's been kind of amusing in the last couple of months and i can already like feel some of you going yeah but what about the conspiracy theories that have like panned out to that i say fair enough But we're still given this warning from Isaiah that we must take seriously if we're to call ourselves believers in the word of God. So when I talk about practical atheism and the connection here, again, it's not that you stop believing in the kingship of Jesus. It's that the kingship of Jesus is no longer your rest, your comfort. Sometimes you literally lose your rest. You lose your sleep, paralyzing fear, overwhelming terror. And then you try to answer that fear with very worldly weapons, right? As long as we elect the right person, then all my fears will go away. As long as we get the right people on the bench or the right people in office or towing the right line. As long as we judge everybody by whether or not they take red pills or blue pills, a rather marvelous way of dismissing people so you don't have to be bothered with the difficult task of loving them. If, if, if some of you don't know what I'm talking about there, then Great. To this pathetic attempt to know all things so you can anticipate all troubles, which is what Isaiah is getting at. What's underneath the root of an obsession with conspiracy theory is anticipating all things so you know what's coming, so that at the end of the day, you get to say, told you so, you idiots. Okay? To this grasping and clawing at knowledge that enslaves your soul to fear, what does God say? Verse 13, the very next verse. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. If you want to fear something, fear God. Stop fearing the things that you're designing in your head about what's really going on. Even if you're right, what does it win you at the end of the day? Bragging rights? Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Do you see the wisdom in this? this? This stretches back to one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, easy to remember, Deuteronomy 29:29. 29, 29. Right? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, not you. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, the things that are revealed. In his word, belong to us and to our children. Why? So that we can do all of what he commands. And to this, into this chaos of Judah's fear, God promises a child, which is kind of weird. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government, that conspiracy-riddled thing you're terrified of, it'll be on his shoulder, not yours. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So with that bit of background, and we'll, we'll tread the ground of Isaiah 8 uh, again in the, in the coming Sundays. Let's reflect briefly on what this promise means. This promise which speaks of Jesus as the child who will come, the child who will be given, given various names, beginning with Wonderful Counselor. Some commentators think there's actually two names here. That is, his name will be Wonderful and Counselor. Uh, I don't think that's the case, mostly because every title here gets an adjective, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, uh, prince who is the bringer of peace is is the idea in Hebrew. Uh, Prince who is the the peace bearer or the bringer of shalom. Into our chaos, fear, confusion, obsessions, God sends a child who will be a wonderful counselor, right? Because... Where do a lot of people go when they're afraid? They go talk to their counselor, right? And so what does this teach us? It teaches us at least three things about what knowing Jesus, knowing this promised son, calls us to. First, we're called to wisdom. That's the counselor part. Second, we're called to wonder. That's the wonderful part. And then third, we're called to worship. Okay? So we're called to wisdom, we're called to wonder, and we're called to worship. First, we're called to wisdom. The Bible is full of calls, commands, invitations to be wise and to have wisdom. Uh, In Proverbs, there's this command, go and get wisdom, which immediately has to mean, okay, that means it's something I can get, something I can acquire. In Proverbs, wisdom is portrayed as this woman calling out to people, inviting them in. And many things in this world appear to us to be wisdom, In fact, they are foolishness. That's what Proverbs is all about, right? This this distinction between wise man and foolish man. I'm going to give you three examples that I think are loosely kind of connected to our text here that we can see in Isaiah's day, that we can certainly see in ours. Put that up, please. So three things. Wisdom, and I, I think these are wrong understandings of wisdom. Wisdom reduced to learning. Now, wisdom is not less than learning. It's just a lot more than that. So wisdom is learning, knowing all the right things, reading all the right books, so having all the right degrees, so now I have wisdom. <laughs> no. Wisdom as cynicism or mockery, that is devaluing the right things, joking about them, making a mockery of them, so that's what makes me wise. I'm really cynical, which makes me sound like I'm above everything, looking down on it, right? And then wisdom is clairvoyance, predicting the right things. This goes back to verse 12. This is Israel's problem. Again, let's, let's go there. Right? The Lord spoke to me and said, Don't call conspiracy, all this people call is conspiracy. Don't fear what they're afraid of. Don't share their dread. Our flesh is very often obsessed with what's really going on here. And we want that knowledge more than we want to trust God with whatever He has. This is precisely what Israel was doing. If we go back to verse 19 in chapter 8, what are they doing? Next one. Yep. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums, the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? What's this talking about? So, so mediums, necromancers who, who chirp and mutter. I like that in the ESV. This is a, this is a reference to a kind of a pagan practice where you would go to your local spirit medium who would communicate with the dead. What they would do is they would have their ceremony, and then they'd sit in silence and they'd wait to hear the whispers. And then they would, they would whisper what they believe they heard. Right? Now, whether it was absolute hogwash, their showmans, or whether it was rooted in demonic power, I leave to you. It's really kind of a lose lose situation, if you ask me. So they would sit, and they would wait to get their two-by-four of inspiration from the, from the dead. Right? They would wait for the dead to start talking to them, because the dead had knowledge of the future, supposedly. And so what the Lord asks them here, you see, don't you have a God to whom you can pray? Not go to these mediums, these necromancers who claim to communicate with the dead. Sit in the silence and wait for the still small voice. (laughs) And then those still small voices start giving you knowledge of the future. And then empowered and armed with that knowledge, you can finally act and do what needs to be done. As an aside, I do think far too many American evangelicals operate under a similar principle. We just don't call it necromancy. We're Americans, so we call it our gut, right? So whatever your gut whispers to you, that must be what's right. Uh, sometimes we call the gut Holy Spirit so that nobody's allowed to question what we say. Oh, y'all are too quiet for that one. All right. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Um, because there's a false teaching then that God has like a secret plan for your life, but he's not very sporting, so he hides it from you, Okay. So you have to work like really, really hard to read the leaves and discern it. And what does Isaiah say? Does he say, you're listening to the wrong chirpings and mutterings? No. In the very next verse, what does he say? Rather than the chirpings and the mutterings, where do you go? To the teaching, to the testimony. That's where we have to go. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light. To the teaching, to the testimony, to the word of God. If they will not listen to this word, it's because they have no light, no understanding, no life. Are you beginning to see why Isaiah decides to warn them about false ideas? I mean, he calls them conspiracies. Because if you think it's your job to listen to the whispers, to figure out all the secret stuff, it's not a big leap to think it's also your job to decode Satan's plan. Let me say that again. If you think it's your job to listen to all the whispers and get everything figured out, it's not a big leap to assume it's also your job to figure out all the details of Satan's plan. And into this chaos, what does the Lord say? Into this chaos, the Lord tells them, verse 16, bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Send them back to the word. To the teaching brothers and sisters, to the testimony, fathers and mothers, to the words of God, dear saints, and into this confusion and desperation, for some desperate, for some word of direction, Lord, will you show us where to go? What does he tell them? Chapter 9. He says, A child is born. A son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, wonderful bringer of wisdom and counsel and direction. How does he do it? To the word, dear saints. That's how he does it. We are called to wisdom. We've been given all the treasures of wisdom in Jesus Christ, who is himself the very wisdom of God. And so we are called to wisdom. We're also, the second point, called to wonder. This counselor, this wisdom Divine wisdom is also full of wonder. He's wonderful, right? Full of wonder. Bringer of wonder. And, and that's the same word, by the way, that's used uh, to, when we talk about miracles as signs and wonders. Same, same term. And do you see how this connects with the three earlier ideas that I showed you a moment ago? If we can bring that slide up again. Oh, did I not put it where there it is? So these three, wisdom is learning, wisdom is cynicism, wisdom is clairvoyance, these false ideas of wisdom. Why? Number one, learning. When you know everything, or believe you know everything, you can't be bothered with wonder. Nothing is wonderful. You've, you've, you know it all. You've seen it all. Boring. Right? What a snooze. When you're cynical about everything, you can't risk wonder. Right? That would totally destroy the whole like edifice of cynicism that you've built. To be amazed, to be made small by wonder. And then wisdom is clairvoyance. If you believe you have the future all figured out, well, you better make sure that wonder doesn't threaten your plans. The, the greatest, listen, the, the greatest, hmm, some of the greatest sin patterns that we might see in ourselves, or hey, even in our neighbors, and some of the greatest. Heresies in the history of the church are not rooted in reason. In other words, a lot of uh, pervasive sin problems didn't happen because somebody sat down and said, I think I shall develop an addiction and an idolatry today, and I think it will crush me and, and tear me down for the next seven years, right? No, nobody finds themselves in that situation by reason. In the, in the same way, nobody really finds, I mean, broadly speaking, no one finds their way into heresy by reason. It would be that perhaps be a separate sermon, but um, a lot of it is certain experiences that make things untenable. But more than that, the greatest kind of heresy and some of the most poisonous patterns of sin are often rooted in spiritual boredom, just boredom, seen it all, done it all, heard it all. Oh, yeah, I know the gospel. Yeah. 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 Forgiveness. Yeah. Uh huh Great. Show up for church. I I mean, I guess, yeah. If it excites me, entertains me, if it makes me feel smart. Now, maybe you've experienced times in your life as a Christian where there's good work and good work that you're doing and, and good work that you're engaged in, but there's no wonder. There's no... Maybe there's confession. You know what to say. But there's no amazement. There's knowledge, perhaps, but there's no joy. Is it any wonder, then, that in Isaiah 9-6 we are promised a counselor, bringer of wisdom, direction, clarity, who gets called wonderful. Why is he a wonderful counselor? Because the revelation of God must necessarily bring with it both wisdom and wonder. Amazing love, how can it be? For, oh my God, it found out me. There's the wonder. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit until the work is done. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Tim Keller has helpfully defined wonder as involuntary praise. Involuntary praise. Praise that wells up within you. And if you think you're not capable of that, I have really good news for you. If you hear me say that and you're like, involuntary praise. Not, it's not really my personality type, Rhodes. It's not really my thing. You already do it. So I don't get discouraged. You already do this. Involuntary praise is not something you have to have the right personality for. You're already built doing it. You were created to worship with wonder. It's the reason why if you really, really love something, you break forth into praise. You already do this. It is not hard to get any of you talking about your favorite book, especially if it, like, changed your life or the way you see things. Or if I ask you about your favorite movie or favorite Christmas movie, right? That's when fights will start. People will fight over their favorite Christmas movie, man. Your favorite song, your favorite piece of music, or your favorite place to visit, uh, man, Marissa and I got to go to the uh, to the o- Ozarks in the fall. I can't wait to go back, and I'll tell you all about the vacation we had. I love talking about it, because it was great. Now, you, so you have this impulse in you that often wants to just stop somebody and say, Isn't this so cool? Isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? Why do you do that? Because you can't fully enjoy it unless you praise it. Right, I mean, we, we praise what we enjoy because that's what kind of like completes the enjoyment it, it doesn't just express the enjoyment, it completes it. Imagine again your whatever your, your favorite book, your favorite movie, your favorite song, your favorite place to visit. now, imagine you can never talk about it to anyone ever again well, that's lousy. doesn't it lose something that's because to, to, to praise it is the completion of the enjoyment. And so this leads me to my third and final point. I said we're, we're, we're called to wisdom. We're called to wonder. And we're called to worship. Worship is where our wonder is, is made manifest. Right? It's wonder you can hear. Wonder at the table. Wonder you can smell and touch and taste. Wonder you can sing. Wonder and worship are tied together then. And we learned this, by the way, from Paul in Ephesians. When he starts teaching, excuse me, did I say Ephesians. Well, Ephesians too, but as well, but I, I actually meant Romans. Paul, Paul starts teaching in Romans, okay? Very familiar passage to many of you. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Solid theology, right? Yeah. For those who are called according to his purpose. Some more good theology. Now here's 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 an avalanche of good theology. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Theology, theology, theology. What shall we say to these things? If God, if that God is for us, who can be against us? Right? So you have theology, what theologians call the golden chain of redemption, this, this uh, elected predestined call justified, so on, which leads to what? Doxology. Wonder. What, what shall we say to these things? What are you, you going to say to that? Isn't that wonderful? Predestination, election, eternal security, the stuff that makes us puzzle and argue is the stuff that makes Paul want to sing. I think, I think we go wrong if we just turn this into arguments. We like to you know, like to puzzle and we, we wrestle with election. And we wrestle. Paul's over here worshiping while we're puzzling and wrestling with election, right? I want to be more like Paul. And this is what we try to do at Christmas, right? We try to, we try to recapture a sense of wonder. Wonder that God would become man. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Wonder that God's Son would take my sin on Himself in order to forgive me. Now, I know for some of you, talk of wonder is actually a pretty significant point of struggle. If I were to, because if I were to paraphrase, if I were to put the sermon into one sentence, and if, if I were to use this sentence, if I were to say this sermon is, come and be gripped. By the wonder of the gospel, you would hear that as a terrible word of law. It's like the wonder components in your soul of like short-circuited. Now, first, I'm just going to remind you what I said a moment ago. Be encouraged. You already know how to do this. You already do it. and don't. So don't flip that into a guilt. Joke. Oh, I, I do this with, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is you love. I do this with my favorite Christmas movie, but I, I struggle with it at church. Okay, all right. Get over it and take heart that your soul knows how to do it, okay? The the, the codes are there. (laughs) The pathways are there, all right? So what activates wonder in you? Think about that. Why is it that I get so excited about this movie, this book, this song, this place that I go, this event in my life? Okay, figure that out. What is it that, like, rouses your your joy, your, your thrill, your wonder? Get a hold of that. And use it as a kind of anchor. Okay? Apparently, I am capable of wonder. Cool. And I know how. I know, I know how my heart gets there. That's good news. My soul's not broken, right? It, it, it's it's going to work. And then I would advise you to do a few things confess spiritual boredom wherever you find it in your heart as a sin. Okay? Start there. Lord, I confess my boredom with things that ought to delight me forever. Okay. Confess wonder as a longing. Lord, I, I want the, these aspects of my heart to be activated, as it were. It, I mean, whatever words you can find, you use to express that. And then what? To the word. To the testimony. Take 15 minutes a day. Start meditating on the scripture. If you don't know where to start, start with Isaiah 9-6. For the next four weeks... Meditate on these names. What does it mean that he's the wonderful counselor? Why a mighty God? Why do I need an everlasting father? What does Prince of Peace mean? Next, check your inputs. By this I mean, if you use headphones, what's going through them? If you use speakers, what's going through those? If every voice in your life that you're tuning into is God's just missing, okay? So whatever it is, uh, music, podcasts, uh, TV shows, cable news, okay? if God's just not there, that can explain quite a lot as to why your heart is thrilled by everything except God. Next, I would say use old hymns because there's, like, there's freight and, and, and capital there to thrill your heart use good books I mean two that came to my mind would would be mere Christianity that was a great help to me to, to renew a sense of wonder and then John Piper's actually written one called When I Don't Desire God How to Fight for Joy a very helpful one and finally don't give up just don't give up it may take a couple of days might take a few weeks might take a few months don't give up Spend time meditating on the word. Drill down into it. Savor it. Cherish it until you're pondering it involuntarily. You will find when you start doing that that you've never done it. Some of you will find that. Maybe it'll take a little time. Maybe a little more time than you'd like. Don't give up. Eventually, though, involuntary praise comes. It does. You will be heartbroken by glory, but not because it's sad, rather because it's wonderful. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have called us to wisdom. You've called us to wonder, and you've called us to worship. Help us then to grow in these things, to grow in wisdom together, to grow in wonder together, to grow in worship together. Help us to do all these things well as we continue, indeed, to worship together today and forevermore. In Jesus' name.